Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Mark Borg, Jr., author of the book, Don't Be a Dick, Change Yourself, Change Your World, published in 2019 by Central Recovery Press. Mark Borg is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York City who has been in private practice for 22 years and the co-author of the books, Irrelationship, and his follow-up book, Relationship Sanity. He also is a community psychologist and founding partner of the Community Consulting Group, who has written extensively about the intersection of psychoanalysis and community crisis intervention. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here again. <clears throat> well, let's start with an acknowledgement of where we're at. Uh, we're recording this interview in August of 2020, when the country is still in the grips of the COVID pandemic. So I want to know, how are you doing? Are you still practicing? Uh, yeah. I uh, So on March 13th, I uh, took my practice from 26th Street and Broadway uh, in the Flatiron District of Manhattan over to my apartment on 26th and FDR Drive. I'm looking out at the East River right now. And uh, so my practice uh, is now uh, here at a card table on a laptop computer about three feet away from my bed where I sleep. And uh, this is also a card table where I uh, uh, teach my children, instruct them in their classwork all last semester. So it it really, uh, it just couldn't be a more... Um, really kind of chaotic, but uh, interesting time to be talking to you again. Well, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you were able to make the time to, to do it. So Mark, about the book, I want to start with a definition. Um, what is dickery? Being a dick, the way that I'm defining it here in the book is very, very specifically uh, a way in which our insecurities are acted out in poor, self-absorbed, even narcissistic ways that allow us not to see our part in the very problems that we're creating. So, you know, I'm I'm using Dick as a kind of a a, a way, a, almost like a shorthand to a kind of psychological defense wherein we act out anxieties and insecurities and upset and fear in a way that actually inadvertently makes us a target of other people's hostile behavior. So one of the kind of shorthands that I have of understanding this version of being a dick is that it's the state in which you, the dick, me, the dick, misunderstand, misinterpret what are actually counterattacks as being unprovoked attacks. It's like I walk around through the world not really realizing my behavior has painted a, a target right, right 
on my chest. So, you know, I mean, I, I know that we'll have to probably unravel a lot of that, but, but really it's, it's an unconscious defense against uh, accepting that I uh, am vulnerable and walking through this world, you know, in, in this vulnerable state. And it, it's been immensely applicable to what it's been like to, to, to live in these last five months. Well, tell us about that. What, what is it about these past five months that you think sets us up to behave this way? Well, I think that when there is this anxiety that is all, you know, this really kind of layer of anxiety that we're all living in, you know, we've been told to shut down. And unlike the some of the other major, major you know, catastrophes that we've experienced here in New York, like uh, the Hurricane Sandy, and even going all the way back to September 11th, those tragedies, those traumas at this community level really inspired us and compelled us to go and hold each other, to, to join with each other, to, to, to really kind of form more of a sense of community together. And this tragedy, this crisis is really putting us in a place where in order for us to be safe, ironically, for us to be able to take care of ourselves and other people, we have to distance, we have to shut down, we have to close off in ways that are um, absolutely imperative, but psychologically, they're also off-putting. So there it can be a sense as we're walking down the street that the other person is carrying this infection, that this other person is carrying this reason in our head for us to protect ourselves. And in, in the case of, of dickery, as I describe it, it's most often a case of overprotecting ourselves. Like maybe we don't, yes, we need to have our masks. And yes, we need to have uh, six feet of social distance. And yes, we need to be in quarantine, but we don't necessarily have to look at anybody else. And however, they're struggling through this is a terrible threat that I think unconsciously we sometimes perceive them to be and then overreact. So are you saying that when we are behaving like dicks or, or maybe when someone is behaving like a dick towards us, that we've probably done something to bring bring that behavior upon us from you that know, person you know actually I, I'll, I'll tell you th there are a few things that inspired this book one of them was a terrible incident that i had with two people that you know uh you've interviewed at least two of us together um but the other is this quote that i took from the uh big book of alcoholics anonymous and it says we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So the answer to your question is yes. We step on the toes of our fellows through our dickish behavior, which I'm hopefully with a lot of compassion stating as a means of overprotecting ourselves. It's not that we are dicks. I don't believe that there that we are dicks. And I, I don't think that you'd be reading this book if you were actually a dick. I think that what happens is this overprotection becomes dickish behavior. And therefore, we provoke other people, as this quote suggests, unintentionally. And we don't realize that we have stepped on their toes and invited them to retaliate against us. And so, yes, we walk through the world if we are operating in this dickish mode uh, with a target on our back. It's, and I really try to clarify many, many times over in this book that being a dick is something we do. It's a set of behaviors or even psychological defense that result in behavior. It's not something we are. I'm not going after somebody who's like the character logical. I, I'm not going after, I'm not saying like dick is you. I'm saying dick is something you do. And as a result of that, you can do something about it.
And so to be clear, to, to be able to picture it, the kind of behavior you're talking about is like being mean or being a bully or aggressive, yelling at someone. Is that the kind of behavior that you're you're trying to capture with this concept? Absolutely. In fact, I, I, I have a sort of bullet pointed list of behaviors that I see as being sort of the main five culprits um, that really do uh, become dickish behavior and then result in serious uh, uh, counter reaction. And those five things, which I can, I can certainly go into detail, but the five things are righteousness, um, projection, which is where we see the things that we hate about ourselves and other people because they're intolerable to us, uh, weaponized victimhood. And that is like really putting ourselves into this victim role where we believe that everything that's going on in the world is happening to us, that we don't really have a part in it. And in the weaponized version of victimhood, I find that people even put themselves into this position and they get such mileage out of it that they are they become very, very um, difficult to help. In fact, when people try to help the person who's in a weaponized victim state, the weaponized victim tends to uh, turn it on them and say and, and start to say, well, you know, here you are trying to help me. You've never done any good and really to make any attempt to help that person, uh, you know, fail. Uh, then there's uh, the ever lovely turd hurling, uh, which is when you uh, go out of your way to make other people's days miserable. And the last one I think is the one that we've been really dealing with in the epidemic. And it's one that we in New York deal with incessantly. And that is what I call patrolling. And that is when you walk around your world, you know, really with your eyes on other people's bad behavior, you know, all ready to jump on the person whose mask is just like a half a millimeter down below their nose or, you know, or somebody who's walking too close to you or somebody who's, I mean, there are some pretty big infractions that, that you can call someone, but, but a dick really is the very last person who should be patrolling other people's behaviors. So th those are the big, those are the big five. Now I, I want to get something kind of out of the way here because it's, it's, it's obviously it's getting my attention and that's the, the use of the word dick. Yeah. First, first of all, is this kind of behavior only associated with men? No. In fact, one of the things that inspired this book is that I have a daughter who is, you know, one of the most sweet, beautiful, she still is, uh, people I'd ever met in my life. And as she became about 11 years and maybe three months, she just like turned on a dime and suddenly this sweet girl is, is being very defiant and she's having trouble in school and I'm getting called in front of the principal's office a couple of times. And next thing you know, my, my sweet, daughter who I, I felt bad if any profanity ever tumbled out of my mouth is using the word dick and she's using the word dick for herself, her own behavior, her female friends. I'm finding increasingly that people are, are perhaps appropriating this term in a non-gendered way, that perhaps that's sort of breaking out of the binary uh, you know, sort of paradigm that we've been stuck in for so long. But there, there has been this increasing use of the word dick as a non-gendered term and, and not even you know, sort of in the psychoanalytic phallic sense of dick but i just mean flat out like some terrible behavior that sticks out like it's pointing it's jabbing it's doing maybe it is kind of doing what a penis does but I, but it's not just a penis that can really in, in implement this really terrible behavior so I, I really appreciate the way that i i've heard numbers of, of of female patients of mine and even people in the media and megan doherty who wrote a book called how not to be a dick 
you know, all of these, this word has really been, I think, kind of pushed up and into our more kind of collective conscious or unconscious to, to, to allow us to communicate something that is, is relevant to all of us. And, you know, my next question may be a little out there and outside of the scope of what your book is about, but I got to ask, because I'm, I, I, I imagine you may have thought about this when you were deciding on the title of the book. Why do you think it is it a, a society we associate this and other body parts or bodily functions with bad behavior? Like you just used the word turd, right? Turd yeah, sleeping. Yeah. In your book, you reference asshole, which is another common yeah. name that people sling at each other. You're using dick. What is it about, again, body parts, bodily functions that uh, – are use that we use them for this purpose. I think it's, I thought what a great question. And certainly I've thought of that and I've thought about, you know, some of our training, you know, you go back to sort of Kleinian part object, you kind of think about parts of the body that you can actually almost lift off and put out there in some kind of spectral kind of really haunted way. And there they are hovering out there. And it's almost as if you can take one of these body parts and you can put it out there and you can project into it all of these things that either you don't like about yourself, you haven't found tolerable in your own being. And the fact that it get results in, in a dick, I mean, a dick, I think at this point in time, it, it is kind of a culprit. I mean, we have toxic masculinity. We have all of this wielding of a certain kind of phallic power that has become absolutely intolerable, I think. And it's become so hateful and it's going so far. It's become so destructive and it does have this feeling of being, you know, although I want to, as I said, I want to extend this concept to absolutely include females, to con- include people who don't have any kind of connection to male or female, people who are they, people who are them. I want to be able to extend this, but I think the culprit dick has a really bad history and a really bad reputation and a real serious sense of phallic tyranny that I still think we're trying to appropriate in some ways, take back, and then really find a way to detoxify it. Because what I'm saying in this book, ironically, is that, as funny as this might sound, given the title, but I'm really saying that if we're going to be able to deal with the dickery inside of us, then we have to love the dick. We have to accept the dick. We have to accept that these bad behaviors that we keep seeing in other people are actually our own. If they belong to other people, there's not a damn thing we can do about it. I'm not saying that we can't vote. Of course, we're going to vote. But I'm saying in terms of our actual interactions with other people, as long as the dick is somewhere out there, whether it's in society, community, in my marriage, in my child's school system, whatever, um, then then there's nothing I can do about it. I am saying we need to reappropriate dick so that we can take it on and deal with those qualities about us that we cannot stand. And and – Let's let's break that cycle down some more. You write about how this kind of behavior begets more of the same kind of behavior, that it's all part of a cycle in which behaving like a dick to someone almost guarantees that they'll behave the same way back towards you. Right. And then that leaves you feeling injured and victimized. Can you explain how this works and why why are we so unaware of it? Well, first of all, I think that it, 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 it qualifies almost like the, the, the psychoanalytic dictionary di- definition of what we could call acting out behavior. That is where our behavior becomes the expression of, of, of intolerable emotion, wherein the behavior go, or the feeling goes into our behavior and thereby 
bypasses conscious awareness. But I think you're also act, asking a question, which I think is, 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 is what does this, what is the message of Dickory? What does it say? And I think it says a couple of things. I mean, I think one of the big things it says is, I'm not okay. You know, I'm not okay. Uh, I, I'm willing to like put my, my, my really, really, um, incredible discomfort in my own skin out there into a group. And of course, I'm going to call attention to myself and it's not going to be good attention, but at least it'll be some attention. And that attention will also call attention off the other uncomfortable people. It's almost like a dick. It's like a scapegoat in our society. You know, a dick calls for so much animosity. I mean, because again, we, we do have some other words that we use for for dick we use the word narcissist right we use the word narcissist or even maybe a female version um uh also you know i think um would would, would still relate would still be narcissist right these are not male female uh characteristics or even diagnoses and i'm trying to pull away from diagnoses i'm trying to pull away from pathologizing i'm trying to take it back and say well what if then being a dick does take the pressure off a group? What if it allows uh, an uncomfortable relationship to have one person who gets scapegoated for everything that's wrong in the relationship or everything that's wrong in the family kind of identified patient? But I also think that what Dick does much, much, much uh, more clearly, but that makes it so difficult to hear is that it calls for help. It's a call for help. Who do we know that isn't walking around like a dick all the time, an asshole, or whatever other terrible words we can use, who isn't really at base calling for help, who doesn't want to find some community, some relationship where they can drop their offense that is actually operating both as offense and defense and find some ability to be comfortable in their own skin so they don't have to call such horrible attention down upon themselves? So it's interesting because earlier – we talked about how you're not saying that any there's a category of people out in the world that could be called dicks. You're, you said we are all this way at times. It's not about a type of person. It's about a type of behavior. But yet I think that all of us could think about the folks that we interact with on a regular basis. And I'm sure every one of us could think of like one person at mm. least yeah. who we would call a dick maybe because they act this way a lot more often than, than the average person. Yeah. So why do you think there are certain people? Why do those people behave this? If everyone is prone to this because everyone is vulnerable, then why do you think some people behave this way more often and even develop a reputation for being this way? Well, I mean, again, I think the, the trick of answering that question is the trick of doing something very difficult, and that is to take a really good hard look into the dickish behavior and ask myself, is this behavior born of somebody's terrible, terrible sense of being hurt? or being terrified, or being anxious, or being rejected, or being abandoned in a chronic way that they just, basically, you know, we know, you and I know it, that personality disorders are considered, uh, you know, uh, very much a part of, of, of culture, of nurture, of experiences, often trauma, things, horrible things that happen in early life that become part of one's way of being. And if we were able to take off that pathologizing uh, kind of label and instead of you know labeling people and then putting it in this category and then coming up with treatment models to, to deal with them and in a funny way sort of slot them into those categories, then what we would be stuck with if we were able to work through that and let go of some of that, we'd be stuck with this really um, 
incredibly intense task of trying to find out how it is that we can empathize with this person to discover what really went on, what hurt this person, what scared this person, why does this person walk around with this knee-jerk reaction that they already must have immense evidence is going to lead to their being hurt even more unless, as I said in the beginning when you asked me what's the definition, the definition of dick is a psychological defense that allows someone to act poorly as a way of getting rid of the uncomfortable emotion, but, and this is the real kicker, to not be aware of how of what they are doing, to not be aware that it is their dickish behavior that is calling for such poor treatment from the world. You know, you could argue that your 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 model is putting a fair amount of responsibility on the shoulders of the people who you might call the victims, quote unquote, mm. of someone else's dickish behavior. And so I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners are wanting to know, well, if I, ha- if I know someone like this in my life, how am I supposed to, how exactly am I supposed to deal with them? I mean, <laughs> if I'm not, if I'm not going to be a dick back to them, because in my mind, they deserve it. What exactly am I supposed to do? Do you, I, I think the book, in the book you offer some, practical, real-life suggestions for what people can do. Okay, let me tell you. Here's what I absolutely adore about the question you just asked. I love it because it's like, uh, you know, I, and I totally, totally uh, agree that that is, of course, what people are going to think when they read this book. They're, they're going to say, oh, my God, this is such a great book. I'm going to give it to my mom. I'm going to give it to my dad. I'm going to give it to my uncle. I'm going to give it to my boss. I'm going to give it to my girlfriend. I'm going to give it to my, you know, wh- whoever, all my surfer buddies out at the break. But the reality is, as you suggested, that any time you've got a dick in your head, and it could be that totally terrible chronic dick who you know ruins every party. It could be that acute dick who only a couple of times like wielded it against you, but it was enough that you'll never forget it for the rest of your life. Still to have that dick in your mind is for you to enter the space of dickery. And that's why this book has absolutely zero to do, interestingly, with putting the, the onus of dealing with the dickery onto society or anybody else. It's all about taking that, understanding how our own behavior has resulted in dickery coming back at us, and then to look at that as our part in it. If you ask me about the two rules of, of really treating dickery, they're this. One, keep the focus on yourself. Two, refer to rule one. It's that important. So I get what you're saying, that because I think the notion of dick has us scanning our whole world, our whole environment, maybe our psychoanalytic practice, and looking for the dicks. But what it's really calling for, I think, is the dick in ourselves that then joins the other person's dickery, and then we create what I think is sort of the ultimate model of dickery is sort of the idea that there's no such thing as one. Because everybody out there being a dick is an invitation for the rest of us to join them in that behavior, even if it's just thinking. You know, like I said, everybody, I I had people when I told them the title of this book who said, I want a stack of those books. I'm like, a stack of these books? What the hell are you going to do with a stack of these books? They're like, I'm going to give them to every single person in my office, you know, (laughs) like, and so that's where I said, you know, if we see the dickery in other people, that's the best reason I can come up with why we ourselves should read this book. Well, and also if, if you're saying that some of us who do not identify as dicks fail to see it in ourselves that we, in seeing someone else in that way, are perpetuating a dickish kind of 
interaction or engagement, then we not only are committing the crime of behaving like a dick, but of remaining unaware of it, just like the other person. Correct. And that's why this is a wake-up call, because I doubt that there's anybody on planet Earth who, when provoked by another person who gets sort of pushed into that terrified or hurt place, doesn't have their own set of counter-reactions that do place them in a position to be hurt, or place us in a position to be hurt. I wonder if you have a real-life example, either from your own personal life and observations or even your practice? Because I, I imagine some people are listening, they get the concept, but they may still be thinking, okay, but, you know, if someone's a real dick to me, are you saying that I'm supposed to be nice in return? I thought you were supposed to put a bully in his place. I, what exactly is someone to do? And, and do you have an example that might illustrate how how one musters the the grace perhaps to 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 not engage in dickery in return when treated mistreated by someone else i think that's a great question and i do have a whole set of you know a, a list of techniques that sort of build on on themselves but to give you an example and i'll go to where this book actually comes from and and, and maybe it's revealing a little too much but um so there i am at a place called neptune in the east village it's a it's a polish restaurant between 11th and 12th on first avenue and on friday afternoons for a good few years my colleagues uh dr grant brenner and danny barry uh and i would meet there and we would have these meetings to discuss their relationship our previous book and our previous concept something that we're working on and you know so we would get there and we would we would actually implement this these kinds of um uh, techniques for uh, helping people work through certain kinds of relational dynamics that resulted in blocking intimacy and empathy and vulnerability and investment. And, and we'd have these really intense talks. And, and one day we were there and the talk had gotten very, very, very intense. And uh, I felt like one of us was really bullying another one of us and wasn't allowing any space to, for the other person to respond or talk. And I felt like he was getting defensive and I felt like he was raising his voice. And, and I, I got up at the table and I literally said, I, I, I said, shut the f up. And the person looked at me and said, what did you say? And I said, shut the f up. And they, and they said, you can't say that. You, you, you can't talk to me that way, Mark. And I, and I started seeing myself in this incident, like rising, sort of floating above the table and looking down at myself and realizing that what I had actually done in this incident is I had convinced myself that this other person's bad behavior, and let's say it was real bad behavior, and the guy really was a, being just an absolute dick at that moment. He really was doing what I thought he was doing. But my engagement was so severe that the next thing you know, I am you know, hurling horrible words out of my mouth. I'm attacking this person in public. And I look around the restaurant and it just so happens that a family who is friends with my family is sitting a couple of tables over watching me, me, the psychologist, me, the psychoanalyst, me, the author of whatever these books about relationship, absolutely attacking my partners. And it was at that moment from that sort of strange, you know, floating above my own experience uh, place where I just said to myself right there, I said, don't be a dick. I don't, I didn't even know what it meant, but that's what inspired this whole, this whole journey, this whole process. And so from that point on, I started using 
my relationship with my work group, with Grant and Danny, to start working out these 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 steps to coming back. So it wasn't just like this immediate incident that I was able to like pull back and not be a dick. It was that incident that I kept coming back to and developing the steps and the techniques to work with these guys and to make amends for my behavior and to really try to to reveal to them what was going on with me, to get vulnerable with them, to really discuss with them, you know, how, how, how threatened I felt and that I really, there were just some things about our work group that I had not been dealing with. And that this, this incident of supreme dickery on my point part actually did open up to a much, much deeper and, and more intimate relationship among the members of this group. So that took, a, you know, that took a good, you know, couple of years. And this book, in a funny way, is kind of an amends for that incident and for my part in that behavior. Now, I know that's like a huge, you know, unbelievably immense kind of, uh, you know, uh, incident to describe to the answer of your, your question. But that that incident and making amends did kind of did did result in the steps that I've wound up developing to deal with dickery, my own, you know. Well, well. I appreciate you, and I think our listeners appreciate you you sharing something so personal and how it informed the book. You know, I think about the fact that you might have been fortunate or lucky to have that moment when you could kind of see yourself from the outside and say mm. to yourself, "Don't, don't be a dick." Mm-hmm. What do you say to people who don't yet know how to do that? You know, what what, what do they do? I think that what, what I tell them is, I mean, you know, again, in reference, it's funny, I work with a lot of substance abusers and I, and I, so I really respect a lot of the ways in which they work on these problems. And, and one of the things that a substance abuser, especially someone who has a history is, is, is has their eyes out for is something that they call a bottom, you know, it's a place where you've gone to such a dark, horrible, deep place in your, in your addiction, say, or let's say in your bad behavior, that you allow that place to be a stopping point, that it hurts so badly that whatever the defenses are that you usually use to rationalize your dickish behavior, it it doesn't work. It broke down. Maybe I could justify that behavior that I implemented toward my colleagues. Maybe I could justify that before, maybe five minutes, maybe five seconds before that, but I hit a bottom. And so to the person who's looking for ways to really deal with this behavior, I asked them to open up to the possibility that there are behaviors. You could maybe even, you don't have to experience a bottom in your future. Maybe you don't have to go out and try to create this horrible incident. Maybe you could look back and look at a terrible loss in your life and say, ah, I think I can reframe that loss now. I can reframe that loss. I was so thoroughly convinced that it was because this person mistreated me. But now if I use those two rules, keeping the focus on myself and to keeping the focus on myself, then I can go back and actually re-examine historical catastrophes in my life and look for my dickishness as a way of springing myself from the prison cell of dickery. Because it's a horrible, terrible, lonely place to be, to be isolated in this behavior that does nothing but push other people away. And I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I really do. I am grateful for that incident that I had with my colleagues. And I'm grateful that we had already built enough of a work group that it allowed me to like go off the rails so thoroughly. And it allowed me to come back and work through this with them. I mean, me and these guys have been together for 10 years. So, you know, so we've been working on this a long time. Yeah. You know, and, and I imagine that sometimes all of us will have moments when someone has treat, mistreated us, and maybe the mistreatment is real. It's not like we're making it up or distorting something that 
was actually benign, we really have been mistreated. But for reasons that maybe, I don't know, you, you could elucidate, we hang on to our victimhood, no? Yeah. Well, because, we, because again, we get mileage out of it. I think that we don't even realize in some weird way that it is that call for help that we've gotten so accustomed to. And because the help isn't coming, we don't realize that not only are we calling for help, but we're making the actual implementation of help impossible. And that's why I want to keep emphasizing to you that this, at least the way I'm framing it, is a psychological defense. It's a psychological defense that we invite other people into. And in a funny way, if it's just dick behavior meets dick behavior, all we do is reinforce the psychological defense. And we get stuck in this pattern of horrible behavior, isolating ourselves further and further and further from our world, i.e. other people. You know, you mentioned substance abuse, and that makes me want to mention that in your book, you reference, well, you just referenced now in our interview, the big book, and in, in your book, you reference the 12-step, certain 12-step principles yeah. from Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh-huh. I, I'm curious, what made you do that? What made you draw on 12-step in particular? Well, it's really interesting because I, you know, I, I sort of stumbled into the field of psychology Oh my God, you know, back in the late 80s. And I, I, I did work, I did volunteer work at a developmental disability center. And uh, I'd been a lifeguard in the army. So they actually hired me as a lifeguard at a developmental disability center. And I liked working with these people. In fact, I loved it. And so I then went and worked at a psychiatric hospital for adolescents. And on Friday nights, I mean, in probably the year 1988, I used to take these kids to AA meetings at the Newport Beach Alano Club in Newport Beach, California. And even all these years later, I still sort of really remember being there with them and working with them and coming back to the psychiatric hospital and, and talking to them about step work and sponsorship and, and being sober. And so for all these years, I've, I've really been very drawn to the ways in which people allow uh, 12-step programs to be a way that they get through, you know, patterns of really horrible behavior. And, and so that was why I really turned in part, at least to that, uh, way of recovering, uh, from terrible life-threatening, uh, uh, addictive behavior to this behavior, which I think is perhaps not, well, it certainly can be life-threatening. I mean, there are ways in which you can be a dick to other people that can really result in horrible violence being perpetrated upon you. And it ha- I think it happens all the time. Um, so it, so dickish behavior certainly can be a life-threatening condition. Um, I really believe that, but I, but I, but, but to, more to the point, you know, I just, I really have found that, that a certain, um, openness to that recovery model has always informed the work that I do with patients, even in psychoanalysis. So, and that's another word that comes up a lot, recovery in your book. Are you, are you suggesting that dickish behavior is kind of like an addiction? Yes. I'm saying that it's, it's, it qualifies addiction because it's habitual, because it, it is anxiety relieving, because it somehow or other allows, again, you know, the, the mechanism where, even if you look at obsession, you know, my thinking goes, my, my, my terrible discomfort, anxiety, insecurity goes into my thinking, then it gets into my behavior, then it bypasses awareness. And so that qualifies as an obsessive compulsive uh, uh, routine, which again could become habit, which then becomes addiction. And I think it all very much feeds on itself because it allows all this incredible discomfort to bypass awareness. So, I'm going to be really basic right. uh, in this moment because I'm someone who I like to be able to visualize things like a movie. Yeah. Um, I say this to my patients a lot. I, you know, tell me so that I can picture it like a movie. And I'm, I'm trying to picture a scene 
and how the dialogue would actually go when someone's trying to apply what they learned in this book. Um, so like, maybe I'll share a scenario from my personal life. Okay. I, I, I recently had an incident with someone um, close to me who has political views very different from my own. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, exactly. 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 Uh-huh. And I don't think of myself as a dick, but I, I felt very... Pro- so this person said something that I thought was very offensive, um, that, I, that I, I was very upsetting to me, and I felt triggered. And I don't even like that word, but, but I, mm. I, I think it describes yeah. how I, I felt. I, I, I noticed myself get angry. And so I, I responded, and I responded in such a way that in my in my opinion, I stated some facts to dispute what this other person was saying, and I also expressed anger about why this even had to come up because it was in a context where we had agreed we would not even you know, talk about politics. Mm-hmm. I think so many families, <laughs> oh yeah, that many people have established. Mm-hmm. And I gotta tell you, for several days afterwards, maybe to this point, I didn't regret it. I, I did lose my temper a little bit, but I thought, well, you know, but I didn't insult anybody and I made my point and this person's being a bully and, I, you know, bullies have to be put in their place. And now I'm wondering, after reading and discussing your book, you know, was I being a dick? And if so, what was I supposed to say? Like, what would be the non-dickish way of responding to this person. Well, I think that, again, you, you use a word that it, it's really interesting that you use this word because it's actually the first word on my list of, you know, how you uh, sort of not so much disarm a, another person's uh, dickery, but how you allow yourself to disengage. You know, it's not about whether or not you're going to transform the other person's terrible behavior. It's not. It's about how you're going to decline the invitation that the other person is sending to you to join them in their dickery, right? That's the problem. The problem. We're never going to cure another dick. This whole book is about taking a look at yourself. I, it was interesting that you said earlier that it seemed to, that the onus was on society because it, it really, at least in this book, is absolutely not. It's like this book is a mirror. So I love that you, you know, kept using the word respond. But I think – that first of all, it's very hard to distinguish sometimes a, a response from a reaction. And what mm-hmm. I think of in my first step, and I, for me, I mean, such a such an incredibly difficult thing to do, because I think that it simple, simple, simply put, is uh, in reaction I act than I think. In response, I you know, <laughs> in response I think than I act. But I also believe that there has to be something, and I I recommend this all through the book and I recommend it to my patients all the time is that in order to actually have a response to something as provocative as a discussion about politics right now, we need a pause button. We need to allow ourselves to hit pause. We need to allow ourselves to pause in the conversation, even if it's as overt as I can't talk about this right now or I'm not comfortable with this. We need a pause button because if we don't have pause between somebody saying something that feels like a kick in the gut, then we are basically going to be enslaved by our own reaction and we're just not going to have any choice in the matter. 
So when it comes to this kind of situation, if it's really about declining the invitation to dickery, then it's not about transforming the person. It's not about coming up with a snappy answer. It's not about trying to get the person to, uh, you know, to, to vote for our candidate. It's really about declining the invitation to dickery. So you respond, you don't react. And then in your case, this is a tough one. You don't take the bait. You don't take the bait, whatever that means. If there's an agreement that we're not going to talk about politics, then I'm not going to give myself a loophole because I find in dickish behavior, we all have loopholes. We're like, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not ever going to act like a dick unless, mm-hmm. you know, because in the two rules to keep the focus on yourself, I use this with myself and my wife too. My wife and I have this rule. Like keep the fo- if we're going to have a discussion about a problem we're having, we have this rule. Keep the focus on yourself. But I, at least, my wife's probably better at this than me, but I always have this loophole and I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep the focus on myself unless, you know, unless it re- unless you really do something that's so dastardly, you got to get rid of that unless. Because if you give yourself that unless, you're going to eventually take the bait. I think another great, a great, great strategy that, that perhaps you can use in this incident that you just revealed, although it's hard, is you take a time out. You call a moratorium. You don't freeze the other person out. You don't stonewall them, but you literally say, I care about you. I'm going to hit pause right now. I'm going to take a break so that I can figure out how I want to, if I want to respond to this. And then you come back and look, the whole point of discussion, if you're not going to be dicks, then the other person is going to have to agree to not be a dick too. And then you really listen to each other. You have to really listen to each other. And if you do enough of that, eventually you open up to empathy for one another. Now, the political discussion is one that I find I wouldn't say impossible, but it might not be the best, um, you know, it's not the kindergarten level of dealing with dickery, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, it's like right. the grass, because it's funny you said that I had a conversation with my own mother last night of all, you know, amazingly enough. And we too, we have this, uh, shall we say, very strong difference of opinion. And it, 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 I was really surprised because I have been using these techniques and I have been talking to my mother. And though I wasn't trying to, convince her of anything, I did think it was important that I let her know that my wife, who is an immigrant, has a very, very uh, pained uh, you know, um, response to some of the things that are going on in our world. And because my mother adores my wife and loves my wife, that the longer, bigger discussion actually did result in my mother having some empathy for what it's been like for my wife to go through this rather than just cornering herself off in some political perspective and then using that as a defense against empathizing with what we're going through. And so, again, like the example I gave you with my colleagues and I, these are, uh, these are incidents that I've been working on a long time. I mean, I think the process of not being a dick is a, it's a daily commitment. It's something, you know, we wake up with and we've got to commit to, you know, in the, in the day, in the moment and, uh, you know, being cooped up with uh, four people in this Manhattan apartment for the last five months has certainly been provided a lot of opportunity for me. Um, so I don't, you know, so that, that, you know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, you know, thinking about the anecdote I shared, I, I know for me, I don't think that I'm aware of, I, I don't think it's that I was trying to change someone's mind or, pers- or persuade this person of anything. I think instead it was, and, and this is maybe where I felt tempted to take the invitation. Mm-hmm. It was more like I narrated the experience as though it was about me as if it was personal. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm, I'm being attacked here. 
And furthermore, the, the narrative went on to say, and if I don't say anything, then I'm a wimp, then I'm uh. a pushover. And therefore, in the name of, I don't know, standing up for myself and righteousness, yeah. I must say something. And I'm wondering if that's, that's, that's where maybe I got to work on how I'm sort of narrating the experience to myself. It's interesting because when you first asked me, you know, one of, one of the characteristics of, of being a dick and I said, you know, here, here are the bullet points. And I went into some detail with, uh, with four of them. But the one that I didn't go into detail about, interestingly, was the one you just mentioned, which is righteousness. See, I believe that anytime I bump myself up into righteousness, then something else is going on. Like, again, I'm with you. Like, no, you don't need to be – you don't need to tolerate being poorly treated. You certainly don't need to tolerate someone being a bully. But I think – as an option to taking the bait, I really recommend because if you use pause and then you use response and then you use don't take the bait and then you use calling a timeout, what you've basically done is you've given yourself permission to, 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 to back away from that conversation at least for a time period. Then then ask yourself realistically, is this a person who could do the other two really important uh, uh, tasks with me. Could we really listen to each other? Is this a person who's willing to drop enough of their guard, and me too, to create some safety so we can really listen to each other to ultimately empathize? And if that's not the case, then basically the invitation is just inviting us to knock our heads against a wall. You know, because again, I, I think the problem of being uh, you know, in such different political perspectives is that we get so entrenched that we have then created the loophole I was talking about. We have in, 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 especially when we've been hurt by the political system, especially when we feel like it hates us or the people we love, like my wife, like you, mm-hmm. um, then, then that, that so quickly bumps us into righteousness. It basically what we're saying is though we are in a perhaps extremely valid emotional, political, cognitive perspective, if we join someone else who's entrenched in theirs, then all we've got to fight with is our dickery. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much all we're going to get back. And there are, of course, there are some situations where we can walk into them innocently and start this conversation and not know who we're talking to. But I think, I don't know about you, but if I start opening this conversation with somebody like, say, my mother, I know exactly who I'm talking to. So right. I can't just say like, oh, I was so surprised this person was acting like such an asshole. Like, right. I'm not going to be surprised. I was actually quite surprised that we got as far as we did, you know? Right, right. Well, this conversation has been very real and and helpful and the book is illuminating. Um, we are almost out of time, but before we go, what are you up to now? What are you working on next? What are you looking forward to? Whew, okay. Uh, wow. Thanks for asking. Um, so yesterday marked five months to the day that I closed my office and I scuttled across 23rd Street into this apartment where I have seen patients, you know, like just just incessantly where I have raised my children, where I have, you know, done schoolwork with them, where I have loved my wife, you know, like all this great stuff. Um, so as of tomorrow, I'm taking a surf trip down to the Jersey shore for a week. So that's one thing. And, uh, the other major thing that's, uh, that's a major thing, but professionally, I I'm happy to say that the guys that I was sitting at that table with, uh, Neptune in the East village, the three of us have just received a contract to write our publish our third year relationship book, which is called making your crazy work for you. And it should be out, uh, in April of 2021. 
Oh wow! Is it, it written? Uh, it's written. Yeah, it's written. We're we're wow. yeah we're, we're cranking. We are cranking. You know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we'd love to come see you again. Maybe all three of us can. That would be great. I've never had the three of you on all at once, so yeah. maybe maybe we can make it happen. That's I, I that's, love that. That's really exciting. You you you're great, and you guys are great, and the work that that you do is amazing. And uh, this book is a is a real gift. Um, the book again is "Don't Be a Dick: Change Yourself, Change Your World," and my guest is author Mark Borg Jr. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been so great to be here again. Take care. Take care.